everyone, I'm Sarah. And I'm Tony. Welcome to Industry Magazine's brand new podcast. Industry is Oxford University's art, fashion and culture magazine. Every month we'll be bringing you interviews with artists and music from up-and-coming performance, as well as poetry, soundscapes and other creations from our team. Our theme this month is the idea of archive. This could be archives for old work, hoarding, or the residue that builds up from projects, collections and sentimental items. This can manifest itself in many different ways, from the textile and tactile, to musical sampling, to diaries and journals. This episode will be hearing from Oxford-based arts collective and record label Jive Hive about their upcoming record with Moving Still. I'll be chatting to London-based artist Mihaela Elena Mann about the relationship between the archive and craft in her work. And we've got an original soundscape from our sound team featuring poetry from Fernando Pessoa's personal archive. We hope you enjoy. I am here with Christian Gately and Phil Tomei from Jive Hive. Jive Hive are an Oxford-based art collective and record label who have hosted events at Freud and the Billington with artists such as Alex Rita, Afriqua and Moving Still. Jive Hive's first release, Taffodal, a four-track EP by Dublin-based producer and DJ Moving Still, will be out on the 12th of March and is available for pre-order now, so get on that. Thanks, guys, for coming on. No worries. It's a pleasure yeah. to do this. Can you tell us how Jive Hive started and how you came to work with Moving Still? I think one day we went for a walk in the park um, and we were very hungry. And uh, we were sort of, I don't know, we, 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 we just came up with the name Jive Hive. It was Yom Kippur, wasn't it? it was, yeah. It was the fast. It was Yom Kippur. So it was so Yom Kippur, you know, is the sort of uh, high holiday, Jewish high holiday. And uh, during the day of the fast, we were walking. You can't take any um, uh, transport. So, you know, you can't use any mechanized form of transport at all. And so we were walking from one uh, synagogue to another and uh, across Hyde Park. And uh, yeah, and on the bridge, on the Serpentine Bridge, we came up with the name Jive Hive. <laughs> but anyways... You know, we, we, after that, we got involved. We, you know, we did a we did an event at Freud. Uh, we thought we wanted to, we really wanted to bring the kind of like underground jazz scene in London, which at the time was like, you know, still kind of bubbling up. Not as, you know, what, what do they call it now? The, the sort of yeah, British uh, jazz renaissance. Yeah. But anyway, the, the idea was to bring that to Oxford. Yeah. At least the initial idea. And so we got. Um, That's where we had Yasmin Lacey. And then I came in after that. Um, for the first one with Moving Still. And that's that's where we met him. That's where we first... Like, yeah, the second event, we knew we wanted to do more of a kind of party. A classic sort of, you know, yeah. heavy club like in Oxford. And so, we, you know, we, 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 we talked to the Buller and um, the, and they were very, you know, they were very enthusiastic. And we obviously, we wanted to keep this kind of... I don't know, we wanted to bring artists who, who were not necessarily on the circuit. Uh, barely, I mean, Moving Still had never done a gig uh, in the U- in Eng- in England or in the UK at all before this, and we were so interested in uh, you know the fusion of of Middle Eastern music. I'm sorry, I just have to say like 
I love how you told that story about you being hungry and coming up with the name Jive Hive on the Serpentine Bridge. What a story! Um, anyway, when you're finding artists to work with, what do you look for? And yeah, what about moving still drew you in? I think in terms of what you look for for an artist, first and foremost has to be the music, the quality of the music. Is that music as a group, as a collective, as a label, whatever music you're interested in? So obviously it's not, if it's not, it's not something you can sell. It's not something, it's gonna be a hard thing for you to you know, go with. And then also you can say with the personality of the artist as well, Moving Still's got such a great personality. Yeah, you and have to got, work a relationship, you know? Yeah. We, we, we met, he was just such a lovely dude and he was, he was, he was so cute and very sort of approachable and- uh, He's I joyful. What we, yeah, and what we really, I think, I, you know, and also he's just got this wonderfully unique kind of cultural perspective. You know, he's, 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 he's half Saudi, half Irish, and he grew up in both countries. And that was always a key part of the, of the collective. We're going to listen to some music from the record now. So tell us about the track we're about to hear. Well, yeah, it's the, it's the opening track of the record. Um, it's called Batata Charmer, which is uh, obviously uh, is a play on words on uh, is a potato charmer rather than a snake charmer and potato, which highlights the um, double heritage of, uh, of moving still, you know, being Saudi Irish. Um, and uh, yeah, I think, you know, it's definitely, uh, it's, it's a belter, as they say.
So how's it been working towards the release of new music in a pandemic? For Jive Hive as a business itself, it's, you know, getting into the label business also through COVID has been something that, you know, whilst clubs, you know, doing nights conventionally hasn't been possible, it's been something we, we can do and where we're so excited yeah. to be doing that. Because we'd be swamped. I mean, usually, you know, it's always like, when's the next gig? I mean, organising a gig is, is, is a very stressful endeavour. And it's very, it was, you know, we've always wanted to start to, to launch a record label. And I don't think we would have had time had there not been knocked down. Mm. We would have never got around to doing it because we're always like, okay, we've got to get ready for next month's one. And then the next, you know, as soon as that's over, you start preparing for the next one. There's no sort of break. Yeah. Because you've got to keep the momentum going and, you, and, and also, you know, in terms of cash flow. And stuff. Yeah. It's just the whole thing. It's like, you know, it's like a shark, you know, stop swimming, it dies. It's a very different type of work <laughs> to doing a night because it's, it's a long, there's an arc to it. You know, it goes over the process of a year or, you know, whatever. Whereas a night is sort of, you know, 30, 60 days of calm and then the actual night, everyone's just running around like a headless chicken losing their mind because they're freaking out. Um, so it's, but it's been interesting. It's as much as, you know, it's been an interesting process for us as well to sort of learn how to do this. So you've described the record as taking listeners from the depths of Jeddah to the corners of Dublin. Can you tell us about how moving stills Irish and Saudi heritage? I know you've already hinted at it before, um, but could you tell us about how we will hear it on the record and any other key influences? Yeah, so, um, so Jamal moving still was raised in Jeddah. And then when he was 15, he moved over to Dublin. Um, so his mum is Irish and his dad is Saudi Arabian. And growing up, his mum would bring cassettes and tapes back from Dublin. She'd bring sort of 90s dance music, Prodigy, all that sort of stuff. And while the father was into more conservative Arabic music that was going on at the time, Particularly uh, something called uh, a tradition called Mizmar, yeah. which is uh, a sort of Saudi African uh, sort of uh, percussive uh, music. I would encourage uh, yourself and the listeners. To when you hear up. the sound, you'll you'll know exactly what it is. It's it's very it's it, you can see it in the percussion lines on the record. There's a lot of additional percussion uh, on the sides that is uh, that is very Mizmar uh, inspired. And then obviously, you know, there's, there's all these kind of like uh, late 90s synth lines that are mm. clearly very Western. Um, and uh, a, lot of, a lot of them are based on um, this movement called New Beats, which kind of was very popular in Dublin in the, in, in the mid 90s. It comes from uh, Belgium. It was one of the sort of precursors to techno. Um, and sort of it kind of overlapped with the early, early techno movements. It was very kind of poppy. And, uh, and then on the other hand, the scales that the synths are played on, the sort of the actual scales are all Arabic scales. Um, they're all uh, traditional Arabic scales, mostly. But yeah, it's a beautiful marriement of these sort of two cultures is the record. And, and you know, that I think yeah. comes through a lot. You can see that in the album art as well. We use this wonderful artist uh, called Daffod, who's based in Bristol. And he, he hid, um, they're sort of hidden it's very Arabic in terms of its, its you know, the sort of Arabic geometric patterns, because obviously, you know, in, in, in Islamic culture, there's no uh, figurative art. So it's all sort of geometric. And, that, and there are sort of hidden kind of um, 
Irish symbols. So there is, you know, little three leaf clover, there's this Irish national herb and there's things, you know, yeah. you'll see. And the interesting thing about the artwork as well is that was actually a little bit of a conversation with the music as well, in the sense that we did the artwork and then actually from the artwork, Jamal then got the idea for the name of the record, Tafadal, which means, which means welcome, essentially, in, in Arabic. Um, and so, yeah, that was a nice little back and forth between the label and the producer creatively. What's also really cool about Moving Still is that he doesn't just mix geographies in his music, but like time as well. Like we've got stuff from the 90s and beforehand with his dad's conservative music. And right now, like that is really cool to see like a real kind of holistic mix. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the scales that I was referring to are, um, uh, you know, are classical scales from uh, religious music from the sort of 11th century, from the sort of the golden of Islam, right? So, you know, you think about the period when, when there was Islamic culture on the Arabian Peninsula. So, yeah. So, I mean, it's really, really ancient. I mean, this is sort of pre-Baroque in, in with, you know, in the kind of classical Western timeline, if you like. And it's, it's fundamentally, you yeah. know, I mean, it's kind of, it's based on electro, really. I wouldn't call it electro, but the, I don't know. Very hard to categorize music these days. Mm. But even, you know, in a modern sense, as you were saying, this music is so expansive in terms of time and genre. You know, we're going from Arabic artists like Muhammad Abdu and Shireen all the way to people like Aphex Twin and um, Fortet and, you know, modern sort of ambient artists and all that sort of thing. Um, the influences are, are so wide. And I, you know, during his childhood, he was hugely into rock and that sort of segued into electronic music and his sort of later teenage years and hip hop. And, you know, there are a lot of sort of influences that come from other genres of music as well. Do you have any advice for students or young people wanting to get into the music industry? You know, do, do it yourself. <laughs> I mean, nobody taught us how to start a record label, how to launch, you know, we... We had a meet, we, you know, we all got together, we got some beers and we were like, all right, let's start a record label. And we were like, okay, how do we do that? And I was like, I don't know, but you just got to do it and you'll make mistakes. And, you know, and, and I mean, at one point when we were doing quite well in terms of our live events pre-pandemic, you know, we were, there was some interest in someone sort of taking control of our, uh, or, or, you know, offering us money for, for, part, for, for our name for our brand and uh, and it was a big discussion, but you know, ultimately we decided that it was kind of against, you know, our whole ethos to, to go to go for that. Uh, and there will be a lot of people who will try and sort of, in that way, sort of take advantage of what you're doing, especially if what you're doing, you know, has some momentum. Um, opportunities, you know, barely, barely exist. You know, the, the, the market is oversaturated, you know, find something that you really believe in, uh, a niche that, ex that that you think the people around you want to listen to and want to um, follow. I guess when you're starting up these sort of things, whether it be running a night or a label or, or whatever, they can initially seem like quite a big leap and quite a big risk. You've always got far less to lose than you think you do in life. I think that sort of stands for anything. It's the single great, you know, most fun, you know, intense, lovely thing that I've done at uni I've had so much fun and enjoyment doing it um you know I wouldn't want it any other way it's been great and I think the other I guess little piece of advice that I'd say is is 
this whole thing is all about strong relationships and building those strong relationships, whether that be with the guy who owns the club or the people who does the artwork or, or whatever. It's so key because it's all, you know, it's, it's all about that sort of thing. Yeah, and, and, know, and learn how to use Excel. Brilliant. So what is next for the Jive Hive? Any upcoming plans, projects, ideas, dreams? We're definitely going to be looking into releasing other records uh, and especially records that move away from uh, being wholly sort of dance floor focused. I think we're interested in, you know, moving towards jazz. Can't say, you know, we can't say any names, but we're looking to move towards more, more kind of more jazz and uh, also perhaps a bit of R&B, more pop R&B. You know, I think really what holds the, the collective together is not necessarily a genre, but just a kind of attitude. So it doesn't really matter. I mean, our, our, our event, you know, our last event uh, pre-lockdown was a cabaret uh, that was largely inspired by um, uh, the Dada, Dadaist cabarets that were going on, you know, during World War One in, uh, in Zurich. And, you know, there was a lot of performance art and burlesque and drag, you know, and, and I'm, very interested in, in, in exploring that dimension, you know, of theatricality and really, you know, creating kind of cultural events that are not necessarily uh, limited by being purely musical. That is so exciting. I look forward to seeing what Jive Hive has to offer the world. Thanks, guys. <laughs> no worries. It was great. Thank All you. Right. So you can find Jive Hive on Instagram at Jive Hive Records and Moving Still at Moving Zero Still. Moving Still's upcoming record, Taffodal, is available for pre-order now. To play us out, we're going to hear another track from Taffodal. This is Moroccan Mint Tea.
Next up, we have a soundscape built by our very own sound team, based on the poetry of Fernando Pessoa. Pessoa was born in Portugal in 1888 and grew up in South Africa. A key figure of Portuguese literary modernism, he is fascinating for his distinctive presentation of identity. He created more than 70 heteronyms. These are alternate personas, with different poetic styles, aesthetics, biographies and personalities. Some even had their own unique astral charts, and Pessoa dubbed himself the splinters of the universe. The fragmentation of his poetic craft is materially reflected in his physical archive of manuscripts, made up of over 30,000 loose pieces of paper, now scattered around different collections. I first became interested in Pessoa when I started reading his book of Disquiet, the radical depersonalisation of himself in favour of creating a highly populous literary universe was really exciting to me. Luisa, who's also a member of our team, grew up in Brazil listening to her mother reading Pessoa's poems. Recording started after dinner in Luisa's mum's kitchen. What you're about to hear are excerpts from an ode from 1914, which was written by Pessoa's explorer heteronym, Álvaro de Campos, in a collaborative reading both in Portuguese, the main language of Pessoa's work, and English, the language in which he wrote his early verse. Vem, noite antiquíssima e idêntica, noite rainha nascida destronada, noite igual por dentro ao silêncio, noite com as estrelas lantejolas rápidas no teu vestido franjado de infinito. Vem vagamente. Vem levemente. Vem sozinha, solene, com as mãos caídas ao teu lado. Vem e traz os montes longínquos para o pé das árvores próximas. Funde num campo teu todos os campos que vejo. Faze da montanha um bloco só do teu corpo. Apaga-lhe todas as diferenças que de longe vejo. Todas as estradas que a sobem. Todas as várias árvores que a fazem verde escuro ao longe. Todas as casas brancas e com fumo entre as árvores. E deixa só uma luz e outra luz e mais outra. Na distância imprecisa e vagamente perturbadora. Na, na distância subitamente impossível de percorrer. Come, self-same and ageless night. Queen of night, born dethroned. Night matching innermost silence. Night spangled with fast-flying stars. In, in your, your dress, dress fringed by infinitude. Come drifting. Come lightly. Come in solemn alone, hands fallen at your sides. Come, Come bearing the distant hills down to the foot of the trees nearby. Fusing all fields, I see into your one field. Turn the mountain into a single block of your body. Expunge from it each bit of difference I see from afar. All the roads climbing it. All the various trees, turning it dark green in the distance. All the white houses with their smoke rising through the trees. And leave but one light and another and still another, in the blurred and vaguely disturbing distance, in, in the, the distance, distance suddenly impossible, impossible to penetrate. Nossa Senhora das coisas impossíveis que procuramos em vão, dos sonhos que vêm ter conosco ao crepúsculo à janela, dos propósitos que nos acariciam nos grandes terraços dos hotéis cosmopolitas, ao som europeu das músicas e das vozes longe e perto, e que doem por sabermos que nunca os realizaremos. Vem e embala-nos, 
Vem e afaga-nos. Beija-nos silenciosamente na fronte, tão levemente na fronte que não saibamos que nos beijam, senão por uma diferença na alma. E um vago soluço partindo melodiosamente do antiquíssimo de nós. Onde tem raiz todas essas árvores de maravilha, cujos frutos são os sonhos que afagamos e amamos, porque os sabemos fora de relação com o que há na vida. Our Lady, of everything impossible we strive for in vain, of dreams that come to us by the window at dusk, of the schemes that beguile us, to the European sound of music and voices far off and nearby that hurt us, knowing we'll never come anywhere near them. Come lull us. Come soothe us. And kiss our brow silently, our brow so lightly, we're not aware we've been kissed, except for some difference in the soul, and the hint of a sob that flees like a melody out of what's most ancient in us, rooting all those magical trees whose fruits are the dreams we fondle and love, because we know them apart from any connection with life. Vem, soleníssimas, soleníssima e cheia, de uma oculta vontade de soluçar, talvez porque a alma é grande e a vida pequena, e todos os gestos não saem do nosso corpo, e só alcançamos onde o nosso braço chega, e só vemos até onde chega o nosso olhar. Vem, dolorosa, Mater dolorosa das angústias dos tímidos, Turis herbúnia das tristezas dos desesperados, Mão fresca sobre a testa em febre dos humildes, Sabor de água sobre os lábios secos dos cansados. Vem, lá do fundo, do horizonte lívido. Vem, vem e arranca-me do solo de angústia e de inutilidade onde visejo. Apanha-me do meu solo, mal me quer esquecido. Folha a folha, lei em mim, não sei que sina. Come solemnly. Come most solemnly fall. Of a secret yearning to weep. Because, Because the soul, soul is immense. immense. And so life so meager, perhaps. And all our gestures go no further than our bodies. And we can reach only as far as our arms go. And see only as far as our sight allows. Come, most sorrowful, Dolores, mother of all the anguish of the fearful. Turis, Ebernia, of the sorrows of all those scorned. Solacing hand on the feverish head of the humble. Savor of water on the dry lips of the weary. Come from the depths of the livid horizon. Come and uproot me out of the soil of disuse and anguish, where I superabundantly flourish. Pluck me out of the soil, forgotten daisy. Petal by petal, read me in what fate I do not know. Mihaela Elena Mann is a visual artist trained in fine art at the Ruskin School of Art and St. Catherine's College, University of Oxford. She lives and works between London and Mediash, Transylvania, spanning sculpture, drawing, video, and textiles. Her work interrogates the formulation and articulation of collective, as well as personal histories in the absence of historical documentation. Constructing physical and digital works that emulate the model and function of the archive, Mihaela uses written and oral storytelling to unpack the social behaviors that have erased, altered, or restored the meaning of familiar objects, images, and icons. Last year, for the Southeast Contemporary Visual Arts Network Platform Graduate Award, Vihayala's work was displayed in an exhibition at Modern Art Oxford. Now we're going to hear a passage from a piece that Mihaela wrote after her exhibition. 
A Year in Review, Episodes of Iterative Making, July 2020. Up to now, I spent a lot of my time trying to replicate textiles crafted by my late relatives from Transylvania. Back home, the motifs that adorn domestic fabrics are not decided by the individual, but are inherited from past family generations. While the same symbols get woven or sewn throughout days and years, topographical and technological shifts unsettle the patterns replicating. I am left bemused by the wish to recreate and the reality of having to improvise in order to recreate. As I realize that I can't fabricate the exact same dyes my relatives were using for their textiles, I extract similar but somewhat inconsistent pigments out of scavenged and hoarded materials that are readily available to me. In light of this, iteration is an effort that could be described as an unrefined adaptation of repetition. When the resources repetition feeds from are exhausted, it turns into iteration, thus making use of all sorts of offways, byways and instincts the weaver has to secure the continuity of the creative process. Amazing. Thank you so much, Mahaila, for reading that out for us. And also, thank you so much for coming on the podcast with us. Thank you. Thanks for having me uh, here. It's, it's really exciting to be part of, of this podcast. I don't know if you remember or not, but how we met was in the Ruskin Library. And I don't remember exactly what we were talking about, but I just remember thinking, wow, this girl is really eloquent and good at what she does. Yeah, I mean, I remember uh, when we met in the library. And I think that what was in a way so fascinating to me was that the fact that I, I kind of felt that we were looking quite similar with each other. We were having similar haircuts at the time. And so I don't know, there was this kind of like natural instinct to just um, to just speak to you. And from what I can remember is that I, I just started throwing uh, lots of references and kind of like things I knew at the time to, to you to just kind of, I don't know, make a good impression, I suppose. <laughs> Oh, that's really cool. I was just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your recent Modern Art Oxford exhibition that you had uh, called Domestic Ideograms. Yeah, so um, Domestic Ideograms was a, a body of work that was made out of textiles, videos, text and drawing that was looking at the processes involved in the, I suppose, recreation of specific domestic weaving that my relatives would be making um, quite a while ago. And uh, this body was largely shaped by uh, the contributions of a handful of family members and friends who gave me materials such as photographs, fibers um, and books that I consider to be relevant for this particular process in a way of, of craft that I wanted to recreate. So um, collaboration in this sense allowed me to open up a body of work that was at risk of becoming too contained on a flat screen otherwise. 
Um, another significant collaborative component of this display, I suppose, was the collaboration with Mexican artist Joana Unzueta, uh, whose mutual interest for mundane craft led to the making of a video that was split into five parts and inserted in the virtual rendering of her past exhibition with Modern Art Oxford. Um, and the videos were meant to highlight a shared, I suppose, formal language um, that was dealing with themes of labor, handcraft, and also the weaving of explicit and tacit knowledge through interdisciplinary and cross-generational exchange. Um, I can't deny that I felt a bit estranged by the digital situation that I had to put my work in, which is something I wasn't quite familiarized with before. Um, I would usually see the exhibiting of a specific um, physical installation as a culmination, if only momentary, of a project. And in this case, it wasn't quite like that. Um, what I would usually do in my practice would be to put everything on paper, make plans, make drawings, and then kind of like cohere all of that into a physical um, sort of like installation. Um, so in a way, I ultimately got the feeling that what I've exhibited there was something that to me didn't feel quite as finished as um, the works that I did before, which... It's not necessarily a bad thing, I think. I also see what I've exhibited as raising fairly intriguing questions about um, the relationship between artistic process and output uh, in installation making, which are left to be figured out. Wow, that's amazing. I'm so happy for you that you got to uh, exhibit at Modern Art Oxford. That's just amazing, especially like within one year of leaving the Ruskin. And I was just going back over the exhibition because as you said it was online this year because of the pandemic and I was watching that video that you were just talking about and it's called At Hand. There was one particular quote that I thought was quite interesting. You said textiles also stand as direct documents of the specific spatial and temporal context that they were made in. Uh, I was just wondering if you could go a bit more in depth about that. What were you meaning by this quote? Yeah, so um, At Hand was actually one of the, the videos, um, of the five videos that were exhibited around her um, exhibition. And those were kind of like mapping different stages of this particular process of recreating uh, the kind of like that textile craft that I talked about before. And I remember very well that when I came up with that sentence um, that you just mentioned, I was thinking a lot about different, different works, different references. And I think that this is a really important part of my work as well. I collect lots of stuff, not only from people, but also from, from different books and different magazines and different videos that I watch uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. And at the time, I think that that sentence was informed in a way by, um, by work that I was thinking a lot at the time, which was uh, this work by Pierre Huyck uh, called Nymphaea's Transplant. And it was made in 2014. And it's basically a live pond ecosystem where he attempted to replicate the biotope of Claude Monet's garden in Giverny. Or I was also thinking of the works of someone like Cecil Tolas, who is a Norwegian uh, chemist and artist, and whose main project has been to build an archive consisting of 7,000 smells, old and new, across the globe. 
So there's this idea of creating physical evocative matter out of phenomena that are impermanent or barely visible through chemical processes that are sometimes yeah, derived from techniques of conservation. And this is something that I was very much interested in at the time, which was, I think, almost a year ago and, and still am to this day. Um, so, yeah, what I was doing with domestic ideograms right at the beginning was to try and evoke and capture in a way the colors and smells which may have been present when my past relatives were making these domestic cloths. However, as I did not have the technological means that artists like Huig or Tolas have to make more accurate representations uh, of something that disappeared or is barely there, I turned towards another less official way of restoring or conserving a practice of textile making, which is improvisation um, through video. Um, and so I believe that, yeah, this joining or overlapping of craft and archiving opens up questions that have to do with the wish to see something that is in motion by means of improvisation. Mm, it's really interesting that you um, use that word improvisation because you also sort of root your, your practice in these methodologies, as you say, these historical methodologies from your family history. And I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit more about craft in this way. Uh, industry's theme this year is craft. So I just was wondering if you could expand on that. Yeah, so um, I see craft to have two meanings that have been interesting me uh, for quite some time. So on one hand, I see craft to be a visceral kind of labor that is concerned with the making of useful household goods. So I'm thinking about, you know, carpentry work or uh, masonry or brewing alcohol. And I got familiarized with this particular type of craft while I was growing up, spending a lot of time with my grandfather, uh, was a pretty big kind of like agent, I suppose, in making me be, feel so excited about craft. Um, and he was this, he, he is this person who would perpetually turn his garden into, um, into workshops for brewing wine, fixing chairs, fixing faucets. Um, and so his whole, he, the, the whole house would become a workshop site in a way. And yeah, having this very particular passion towards handling raw material, prototyping objects, as well as the wish to make something perfect uh, of his, have affected the way I was understanding uh, craft, what it means while growing up. And I think that, yes, um, long story short, craft was something that spoke of a well-sustained kind of labor that was striving for perfection, for accuracy. Uh, but then at the same time, it also stood for a very instinctive and crude way of engaging uh, with materials and, and choosing them. And to me, that is what craft uh, means primarily. But then there is also this secondary meaning of craft, which we would apply to the making of a narrative, of an argument or a story. Um, to craft also means to fabricate a sequence of poses and effects through spoken written words. And this kind of craft is sometimes able to reveal, in a way, the hidden levels of sophistication that come with, let's say, the plain building of a chair or a table or textile work. So in this light, I think that my own work often tries to uncover, I suppose, what could link these two meanings of craft together. Amazing. Yeah. 
So I was wondering about your artistic practice and sort of what inspires you. Well, I guess that what ties together so many of my of the works that I've made so far is noticing and reading through everyday objects and situations. The works that I make emerge out of encounters that I have with objects that I personally find somewhat peculiar or unfamiliarly um, familiar in the, in a sense. Um, quite often a symbol, a building or an artifact that catches my eye hides uh, an equally uh, peculiar materiality, be it historical, technological or mythical. <clears throat> and I think that in a way what ties together my work is allowing all of these materialities to surface as well as to mesh with each other. Um, and this is usually the starting point for uh, my installation work which I see as a narrative space that usually uh, appropriates the model of the archive. For example, the work that I did for Modern Art Oxford, uh, which we just spoke about, as well as the previous project that I did in my final year at uni, had to do with a specific type of mundane craft or, or artifact. Um, with domestic ideograms, yes, it was plain stitching and weaving that to me was made remarkable by a peculiar tradition that was carried throughout generations. And then the three weavers um, became an investigation of how gaps histories come to be manipulated through myths and personal memories. And that was built around a, a neoclassical architectural sculpture that no one cared about and which was also restored in a very completely wrong and hilarious way. So plainly put, I think that this is roughly what my artistic process looks like. I try to allow objects or situations to fully unfold in front of my eyes. I then read them in particular ways and that reading turns into a whole, I guess, case study around what I just saw. Okay, I was just wondering if you could expand a little bit more on the archive. This is our theme for the episode, and just if you had anything more to say about that, it seems like it's a pretty integral part of your practice. Yes, um, I, it is, and especially when I'm thinking about how my installation work looks, it very much emulates uh, the, the archive. And I guess that in that sense, to me, this term stands... Um, for a model of installation making that um, makes use of the form of the archive and which I've been having an affinity for. Um, so this particular system of arranging collections of stuff uh, has emerged at the beginning of the 20th century with the works of Marcel Duchamp or Abby Warburg and has proliferated mainly throughout the conceptual and post-conceptual boom in, in visual arts uh, with yeah, practices of conceptual artists such as Bruthers or Hannah Darboven, Susan Hiller. Uh, and nowadays we can see it in the works of artists such as Rosemary Trockel or Jimmy Durham, uh, even Mark Dean. And yes, we can definitely trace a tradition in installation art in that sense of works that question the relationship between the narrative and the database, which is, I, I suppose, the core question around what an archive is, or how it can be pushed and manipulated. And yes, these are essentially the two means, um, the narrative and uh, the database, through which meaning is believed to be made uh, uh, about the world. 
um, mostly historical meaning. And I, it is something that the conventional archive and multimedia installations share to a certain extent, questioning this idea of, of yeah, generating meaning around the world. And, um, and yes, I, I guess that this kind of like confusion sometimes between uh, narrative and classification that comes with the archive is something that um, that these artistic processes have been attempting to tackle. Um, and so the practices, yes, that I just mentioned in their own way unpacks, yeah, unpack this issue of narrative sequence and like a heap of objects through, um, yeah, themes such as storage, listing, and reanimation. Um, the notion of the archive applied to my own uh, work has allowed me to share uh, to shed a bit more light on um, on uh, another important aspect of, I suppose, the archive, which is fragmentation in a way. So, you know, what happens? Uh, how do archives transform throughout periods of turmoil? Um, what? How do you ensure, in a way, the continuity of an archive? Uh, when it starts to decay and when you don't have the like resources to uh, endure its um, sort of like continuation in the physical sense, what do you do? So, um, and yes, so when applied to archives consisting of objects rather than of documents, such as local museums, for example, um, how is the continuity of this artifactual display being endured when you don't have the means or don't have enough means to do that? Um, and here is where conservation becomes really interesting, kind of gives way to craft work. I believe um, instead of special restoration kit for wood, for example, the local museum in my hometown uses a mix of glue, sawdust and watercolor to fill in holes made by bugs in artifacts made out of wood. Um, so I think that, yes, that particular kind of um, relationship, again, between improvisation and arranging collections of stuff, be it documents or objects, is something that I'm really interested in, uh, in regards to the archive. I really like that word fragmentation. And also I was wondering a little bit about continuity and how that might change from where your practice is based, um, the UK versus Romania. And I wonder if you could just expand on that a little bit. Um, yes. So, um, while I was growing up, I can't say that I had a lot of exposure to any contemporary art scene. Um, and that includes the Romanian one as well, of course. And if I did have it, then it was of the indirect sort, um, in a way. I basically was living in a secluded small town that was miles away from the capital city, which is one of the big art hubs in Romania. That's where you see exhibitions and go to see screenings and connect with um, young aspiring artists and so I was I don't want to sound like I'm victimizing myself um, I was deprived of that so then I had to find alternatives to keep myself plugged in to some kind of form of being present and engaging in dialogue with people of my age who are interested in similar things that I was so as events of this 
sort of the artistic sort barely happened in the provincial areas of the country, I tried to make myself as much as I could um, part of these conversations that were happening miles away uh, by submitting my work, uh, which at the time was illustration to exhibitions where the work got to be seen, but again, which I didn't, which I never attended. Um, so funnily enough, a lot of my art exhibitions, speaking of continuity, uh, before university were uh, mediated by the screen and the post office. Um, speaking of encounters that are happening miles away, um, I think the other more interesting, I think, kind of exposure that I had was to art that was made up until the 1950s um, by virtue of having been taught outside school by a retired drawing teacher. So uh, we would be talking a lot about art history alongside making. And um, those drawing classes instilled in me a very acute sense of the making of art and the way in which it was contextualized and read throughout time, which I feel surfaces a lot in the work that I'm doing um, nowadays. And then, of course, yes, as you said, some kind of friction happened when I moved from uh, Romania to the UK. Um, I remember very well how strange it felt for me to depart from a very traditional way of making and thinking about art. And I felt that, yes, I was exposed to completely new territory. I mean, I also feel that this is something that we all um, feel when we are entering university, which is completely different, a completely different experience from A-levels or from high school, no matter where we come from. Um, and so I felt really, really challenged in a way by notions such as dematerialized art practice or the ethnographic turn in recent art. And so the first term was a bit difficult, but then I started to, to let myself be a bit more loose and be a bit more experimental and shift from, um, from the past and from just drawing and painting to merging um, yeah, documentary uh, into um, sculpture, into uh, illustration. And that's how the, the kind of like the transition happened in a way. But then, of course, it feels a bit reductive, I feel, to speak of two completely different realms between the realm of Romania and its art scene and the, the one of the UK. Um, I very much feel that what ties Romania with the UK in relation to art is this particularly strong interest towards narrative. Um, and, well, in Romania, it seems for it to be manifesting itself through uh, painting, mostly. So you use different kinds of, like, of, of gestural um, of making, of gestural painting uh, language to express a historical, a very charged historical scene. And so, in a way, I feel that something similar happens in the UK as well. Of course, the medium is different. People here seem to be preferring, I, I feel, sound or um, multimedia installation or a video to express um, sort of like critical thoughts around uh, past, the past or the present. But still, the narrative is there. Um, so I think there is a very strong overall, there is a very strong desire to create a picture that tells or addresses a particular history or present reality, which I feel is something that contemporary artists all over the Western uh, world are very much interested in. 
Um, so I think that, yeah, my interest in narrative is something that was nurtured while I was at university, but it's also rooted in the place where I come from. And I think that what happened mostly was for me to become more flexible in the media I was using, to explore what narrative could be when it's flowing through illustration, video, text, uh, or installation at the same time. Wow, yeah, amazing. And we've all sort of been going through a transition period with the pandemic, and I was just wondering in general how your practice changed during this time. Yeah, so um, I believe that this period of time has given me the chance to work on something that I felt was really flawed before and still is, which is writing. I consider myself to be a very bad writer. Um, So even so, I want to try and become better at it. And the only way in which I can do that is to spend as much time as I can reading and thinking through writing. So I see this pandemic as a chance to improve some technical aspects of what constitutes my work, Um, be it, I don't know, exhibition descriptions or scripts or uh, mind maps. Um, And yes, so in a way, my work is very much composed of like written or spoken matter, even if it's not too visible um, at times. So I see this particular cluster of time as a space to, yeah, to think and elaborate on on things. Yeah, that's a really good perspective on it. I know it's been really hard for a lot of us, but you seem to be doing really well. Uh, Do you have any upcoming plans or projects that you want to tell us about? Yeah, uh, well, the primary plan for the next few weeks would be, as I kind of said a bit before, to try and squeeze as much reading as I can in my schedule. And I have started my year with this wish to improve my writing. And one of the ways in which you can do that is to constantly administer yourself a daily dose of pages, podcasts, or lectures. Um, And I think that I've been trying to stick to a fairly strict schedule of, yes, reading early in the morning, watching a film just before I go to bed, or listen to a podcast while I do my daily walk. Um, So I'm trying to insert, I suppose, the gaining of novel information in my day-to-day life as much as I can. And besides that, I'm also trying to find myself um, various opportunities to do work where writing occupies a more central um, role. And I believe that in this sense, one of the wishes uh, of mine this year would be to start writing for a Romanian audience as well. And I have also been doing a bit of post-production work for the past few months, besides just reading and writing. And uh, while I do that, I really, I realize that I really miss that kind of connection that I had with my own footage from my own work. Um, And I'm not quite sure how yet, but I would like to find a way to return to that soon, to video. Amazing. Well, I really hope that you're able to sort of reconnect as you say, to your own footage and work. And uh, I've heard that, you know, quite a few people are doing the same thing as you. We've just sort of got to keep keeping to our schedules and (laughs) getting through the day. So anyways, it's been really nice to speak to you. Yes, thank you so much for the opportunity. It's, It's been an amazing process to 
uh, be thinking through your questions and to also discover um, new ideas about my work, which I haven't been actually doing so far. Um, the exhibition with Modern Art Oxford happened a few months ago, yet, you know, ideas about it and I guess responses um, still keep surfacing. And I feel that this interview was a really good opportunity for me to um, to have, again, one more look at what I did and think through it. So thank you. Fantastic. Yeah, I think art, artistic practices in general go through ebbs and flows like these. So it's completely normal. And um, yeah, thank you so much again. That's everything we have for you today. Thank you for tuning in. If you'd like to discover more about some of the themes in Mihaela's work, she recommends you check out George Diddy Huberman's book, Survival of the Fireflies, Blotch, a global and multidisciplinary project by Swiss artist duo Calm and Calm, and the Serpentine Gallery's 2015 exhibition, A Cosmos, by Rosemary Trockel. If you liked what you heard of Jive Hive, you can pre-order Moving Stills EP Taffodel now. Thank you to Tina Moo for composing the amazing jingle that played us in. You can find more of Tina's music on SoundCloud at 4Tina. If you've been inspired to create some art of your own, why not rewind to our soundscape and have a go at drawing or painting something inspired by what you hear? Don't forget to send us your creations. You can find Industry Magazine on our Instagram at Industry Oxford and on our Facebook page to stay tuned for our weekly events and upcoming virtual exhibition. We'll see you next month for our next episode. Goodbye.